0: So I'm Laura Flanders, and we have an incredible group of people. um, Here from the Women's Media Center, Jamea Wilson, from the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, Dean Spade, and from the Applied Research Center and Color Lines, Rinku Sen. The topic is, let me see if I can remember this exactly. It's been a long time since I was here at Barnard and thinking in these terms. The topic is using knowledge, advancing activism. And I had to figure out what that meant for a while. Um, Tema Kaplan is here. Tema was the head of the Women's Research Center when I was here, and I think she taught us what um, using knowledge and advancing activism means, in the sense that once I got the knowledge from Maria Hinojosa, who was also here at that time, when I got the knowledge from Maria Hinojosa in the middle of the Contra Wars, this is about 1982, three, two, something like that, that Jean Kirkpatrick, how many of you remember who Jean Kirkpatrick was? She had a contra army, illegal contra unit named after her pet spaniel, Um, that she was going to receive the class award for Maria's class. She was a year ahead of me. Um, I went to Tema. (laughs) I said, what do you think we should do with this knowledge? And she said, get active, something like that. So Maria and I organized... I think what was one of the largest demonstrations on the campus uh, at that time, and we, I think, either threatened to or actually did march on President Futter's office, and Jean Kirkpatrick declined her award because of a conflict of schedules. So that was pretty effective using knowledge advancing activism, it seemed to me. But today we're gonna try to get a little bit deeper and talk a bit about what we mean by knowledge what we mean by activism. I went from Barnard to, um, well, to Northern Ireland, to being a reporter, to getting very frustrated with the state of the media, founding the the Women's Desk at the Media Watch Group Fair, where part of the motivating energy behind that was whose knowledge matters? And what counts as knowledge? And how come Women, people of color, poor people, young people, queer people, people who who live close to the most of the action of the world, who are the recipients, who are the people who actually feel the impact of policy decisions. How come those people are said to have experiences and are occasionally featured on the human interest pages, but they're never credited with having knowledge or expertise, and they're almost never invited into the studios themselves and treated with the respect that we, respect, that we treat a Jean Kirkpatrick, even as she lies and kills in our name, etc. Um, the Women's Desk, that was the motivating factor. Who defines what knowledge is? Who defines who an expert is? And after that work, I went into building independent media to provide platforms for those I consider to be the marginalized experts of our world not to do them any favors, but for us to get smarter about what is actually happening on this planet and not to cover those who are on the cutting edge of our planet, who are getting advance warning of what is to come. The women, the people of color, the poor people, people around the world who are the first to suffer the impact of the policies being undertaken in our name and the economic system we allow to perpetuate itself that they not become some kind of exotic species that we study after they're dead, but rather that they be the fonts of knowledge that we need, that we go to right now. So that's the work I do now. I've been working on a TV project called Grit TV that's been around for about three years. We're now on hiatus, transitioning to a weekly program on public television. Uh, If any of you want to participate in that kind of transitioning project, um, feel free to get in touch with me. It's Laura at GritTV.org. We need a lot of help. And I go from that to this panel, where we're going to host this as a conversation. I've I've reassured people they didn't have to give speeches. And, you know, the basic questions that I want to ask are, how do you come to this work? Um, What do you treasure as knowledge? How do you pursue it? Do you have the knowledge that you need? And are there places where knowledge and activism butt heads? Uh, Is that border always smooth? Uh, Rinku, let's start with you. For those who don't know what ARC does, what Color Lines does, what you do, and how you came to this, tell us a little. Okay,
1: the Applied Research Center is a racial justice think tank, uh, 30 years old, roughly and uh, historically very, very tied to community organizing in in communities of color in particular. And our mission now is to popularize racial justice ideas and prepare people to fight for them. And we do that through three, um, three different programs uh, that work very, very closely together. The first is our journalism program, which... Uh, publishes colorlines.com every day. And the second is our research program where we look at uh, both how issues affect communities of color, what their racial dimension is, but also at social change practice and what works well and what doesn't. And then our final set of programs is something we call the Network, uh, and it's where we... Uh, work with individuals and organizations and institutions across the country to actually put these ideas into
0: practice. So give us an example.
1: So uh, one example is, um, you know, at Color Lines, we we cover the everyday's race news, but we also try to do an investigation about once a month and try to punish some people. And so for the last year or so, we've been pursuing a story about how police officers who have bad shootings on their records in the state of California are protected by federal law from being exposed, from having anyone know what their names are and uh, who they are. So in our organization... uh, We're designed so that a person can come in through color lines, that's how we reach the largest number of people, read a story like that, and then get connected to the network of people in California and in Oakland who are working on police brutality issues in that area, and um, uh, occasionally, I'll, I'll talk about another project later, but occasionally our research department also will get involved. So. You know, uh, when I was thinking, uh, really the thing I was thinking most about today's panel is, I was thinking about that phrase, information is power, which I hear a lot. And particularly in settings with young people or in scholarly settings, I hear it a lot. And what I want to say is that actually information is not power. Power is power. <laughs> and the key, uh, the key <laughs> link there is action. Action is what turns information into power. Uh, or what makes information a conduit or useful to power. So um, our whole organization is really designed to take people um, back and forth between information, emotion, and action. Uh, so knowing something, feeling something, and doing something. And our our staff, the way our staff works together, the way our programs work together, the stories we pick, the topics we choose to look into are the ones that give us the best uh, likelihood of uh, helping people move through that system, uh, which
0: isn't linear. And, and how did your trajectory bring you to this work? How did you get there? So
1: I think, um, uh, like you, I started in college. I'm not a person who had politics as a child or who came from a family, a very politically active family. I'm an immigrant and I spent most of my childhood actually really doing my best to be what I thought was an American, which mostly meant watching a lot of TV. (laughs) <laughs> so I watched a ton of TV, and I got to college. You know, kind of so allergic to my uh, identity as a person as a person of color, that I actually skipped the pre orientation program that my campus had for incoming students of color. I was like, that doesn't have anything to do with me, and uh, I skipped it. But in my sophomore year, there was an incident on our campus of racial violence, and it sparked a whole racial equity campaign for new curricula and. Um, new teachers, and you know all the things that students of color need on a campus. And there was there were rallies and meetings, and I was sitting them all out. But I had two really good friends, and one night I was hanging out with them, Valerie and Yuko. And they uh, there was a rally the next day. They wanted me to go, and I said no, it's not for me. And they gave me a talking to. They did an intervention on me, and they said <laughs> they said, listen, Rinku, you're not a girl anymore. You're a woman now. And <laughs> Usually you hear that before you're told to wash the dishes or something like that, but um, have a baby. Uh, So, uh, yeah, you're a woman now, and you're not a minority or a person of color. This was 1984, so that language was just coming into um, being. And uh, and they basically said, it's time to grow up and go to the rally, and I went, and... uh, For the first time in 12 years since we had immigrated, I actually felt like I belonged. That was the place where I belonged. I can't explain it. I still, I don't know why I had that feeling. Um, But my life changed from there. And eventually I came to see organizing, very quickly actually, because we won. Uh, I came to see organizing as pretty much the most beautiful thing that human beings can do together, (laughs) you know.
0: With some acceptance.
1: childbirth, you know they say is also great, but um, <laughs> or reproduction um, so probably yes i 'll accept that, but it's, organizing is definitely among the top top things that people can do together to create beauty and justice and um, and to actually change their lives to change the, their lives and the lives of people around them. So I organized for a long time, and then, um, and then I became interested in the media because I realized it's not just about acting. You have to be about the ideas, too. The ideas are really critical, and we have to be able to get the ideas out there.
0: So. Jamia, you work in that world of both getting ideas out there and critiquing the ideas that are out there. How did you come to your work at the Women's Media Center? And for people who aren't clear about what the Center does, let them know.
2: Well, um, I... Still, just processing what you said about um, the childbirth and <laughs> um, and also the beauty of organizing. And so, I was thinking about what we are all doing every day is midwifing a movement. And um, that was a beautiful metaphor in my mind. Actually, thinking that those things are actually quite in, um, in tandem with each other. But Women's Media Center challenges gender disparities in media, the crisis of representation um, of Women, as well as other underrepresented people and people of color, we do that through media accountability campaigns as well as by training women and girls to be media ready and media savvy and Rinku is actually an alumna of, of our media training program and I came to Women's Media Center after having worked at Planned Parenthood and uh, People for the American Ways Youth Arm and also working at NYU while I was getting my graduate degree in an interdisciplinary program where I pretty much created my own research um, on gender and race politics. And I think I'm one of the only people in my program who actually has a job that's related to my major, but um, <laughs> they always bring me to speak, to talk about the fact that you can be employed with your interdisciplinary degree from that. But I think that um, <laughs> all, of, all of the knowledge that I learned during that program, in addition to the fact that I was raised in an activist family, um, raised by two academics who are actually in the sciences, which is interesting to me in so many ways because we think quite differently. But I've always um, seen this—the world of ideas being directly connected to to activism and um, the power of also sharing that work in and the very many different spaces and audiences who can receive it. So I came to Women's Media Center really because I. When I was in my program, I felt as if there was all this wonderful information and these great conversations that we were having within the circle, but there were so many other people who needed to be a part of this conversation and sharing their stories. And um, I think my first real awareness, too, of the importance of getting stories out there came from my grandmother who, um, up until recently, was a domestic worker. And she, I think, did not graduate from high school but is one of the smartest, most brilliant people and theorists that I know. And having this understanding that she gained a lot of her understanding of what was going on in the world based on media and was able to apply her version of critical analysis, which is very different than the one that that you're taught in school, um, to that really exemplified for me the idea that media is the strongest public education tool and and that um, if that This person who raised eight children to be critical thinkers um, and in poverty was able to um, raise up my dad so that he could get his PhD and give back to the community, um, was relying on on that source of information to educate herself. I I wanted to make sure that we could continue to um, make the media better so that knowing that there's a lot of people who might not have access to spaces like this one or uh, spaces like the ones in in my classroom at NYU, could also be getting information that really resonated more with them and and spoke more to their truth in their communities. Do you know what kind of media your grandmother read, watched, listened to? Yeah, she's a radio lady (laughs) um, for the most part, which I find really interesting since in North Carolina it's rap, country music, and talk radio that I definitely don't think she wants to listen to now. But I know that she is a big radio listener and also religiously watches... um, the local morning, afternoon, and evening news. And um, up until recently did not have cable, so relied a lot on public television as well. And um, when I think of the African American narrative tradition, also uh, she's someone who would speak those stories to people in the community as well. Um, And I recently found out that she's also an avid reader, and so she would go to the library and and, and look into uh, finding out more information, which is
0: something that I didn't know about her. So that's pretty much the media that she consumed. And consumes. Um, Rinku talked about information and the panel talks about knowledge. Do you think that there is such a thing as feminist information, feminist knowledge? Do you think it's different?
2: I, I do. I, I'm still exploring this idea in my mind. Um, one of the things that drew me so much to um, black feminist thought was this idea of, of there being this black feminist way of knowing. Um, and, and being in classes and unpacking that, talking about what that means, a way of knowing. And, and being a quite spiritual person, there was something about that understanding of knowledge, of it being, yes, about information, but also about how it personally is applied to you and your own instinct. And if that information is a amiss, trust that feeling of, being, of it being amiss, but also if that information feels right, trust it and speak it so that someone else can transform because of it. And so uh, my version of knowledge really, I think, comes from this spiritual core of of understanding of this being like we are all on a quest for seeking truth. And and whatever that truth is that, that drives you to act, that gives you that feeling in your core that you need to change something, that is knowledge. That is transformative knowledge.
0: Dean, do you want to come in on this question of transformative knowledge? And then how did you get to where you are? But you've done a lot of thinking about how do we distinguish... Information that feels right and is right and true from other messages that we get.
3: That's interesting. I think that, you know, um, a lot of what I think I end up doing in the classroom is helping people release things that feel really right, but that are, we have the other side of that coin, which is that certain narratives, certain national narratives that are so harmful are um, are often feel instinctual when we're raised, kind of imbued with them our hmm. whole lives. Narratives like, things are better than they used to be in the US because especially in the US, there's narratives about how like, racism is over or um, you know, women are now free and that we have to I think within my students um, there's a real struggle around letting go of fantasies about a progress narrative and also specifically since I teach in the realm of law, but I think this is true amongst a lot, lots of kinds of people, there's a narrative about how people in the US are become freed through changes in law and so there's a huge struggle to let go of the fantasy that like, the right lawsuit or the right uh, legislation will somehow produce liberation and I think that's so I think that you know helping people actually get in touch with things they know from their daily lives like wow there's actually this gigantic racial wealth divide that's expanding in the United States and I can see that all around me so maybe I need to let go of the narrative that I've been told by media and possibly school my whole life that things used to be bad, and now they're great, and now everybody's got a fair chance. I mean, all of those different sort of meritocracy stories. So it's interesting to think about the different kinds of feeling right mm-hmm. that exist and, um, and what it is to engage with, uh, with people in different learning processes to listen to other kinds of knowledge that they also have available to them um, when there's very persistent stories that I think a lot of us are defensively attached to.
0: Now, you did help to found a law project. Um, talk about what the Sylvia Rivera Project does and maybe remind people who don't know who Sylvia was.
3: Yeah, Um, well Sylvia Rivera was uh, one of the people who was at Stonewall. She's very well known for being a a Stonewall veteran um, and a a trans woman of color who was um, basically a total pain in the ass to an emerging white gay and lesbian rights movement that wanted to marginalize issues of um, white supremacy and resistance to capitalism and, um, and she was somebody who was often kicked out told she wasn't welcome um, and w- because she was sort of persistently uh, refusing to allow these kinds of production of a, like a white gay and lesbian rights narrative that doesn't uh, that isn't concerned about racism about homelessness about um, um, folks really struggling uh, with the worst aspects of homophobia and transphobia so she was this really inspiring person who died the year that I founded the project um, and what the Sylvia Vera Law Project does is um, really work to build a uh, racial and economic justice-centered trans resistance. And we, one of the main, uh, our main strategy for doing that is providing free legal help to uh, low-income trans people and trans people of color um, facing. You know, just enormously violent experiences um, of uh, you know state control. So people who are struggling to access homeless shelters and social services that are gender segregated and are really violent. People who, um, to everybody in them, and and often particularly violent in certain ways. People who don't fit the gender models that are being enforced. Uh, lots of our clients are in prisons and jails, are in juvenile justice facilities, are facing deportation or in immigration um, detention facilities or in psychiatric detention, et cetera. So um, we're doing a lot of direct support of people in these uh, very intense spaces of racialized gendered violence. And we do that work in a different way than I think a lot of other law projects, um, which is that we don't actually think that the justice and liberation that we seek is going to be delivered um, through law. We have an understanding that the way that social change actually happens and the only way anything really good has ever been won in the United States is through mass mobilization, not through something being delivered by a court Um, and that a lot of the stories about how freedom has been delivered by a court, if you just scratch the surface, you find out that things actually didn't change as much as uh, they were supposed to have changed. So we do our work from a perspective that services, direct survival services are one way to help people become politicized and mobilized inside movements. And so people often come to social justice organizations in part out of a, a severe survival need and often stay because they find that when they got there, people understood what they were going through. They met others who were going through it too they learned about other things that people related to them were going through, so they expanded their political consciousness beyond their own um, experience, right? Like, maybe they're there because they're dealing with police harassment, and then they find out about what's going on with immigration, and so they're politicized about that as well, or however it works. Um, and that that's actually a key way of building uh, the kinds of mobilization we want to see. And so our our work sort of comes through that path. And one other important thing about how our work works is that we operate um, in a collective structure in a, in a, in a horizontal way, a non-hierarchical um, organization with you know a flat pay scale. And we're trying to resist the ways that social justice has been heavily professionalized um, and especially the ways that lawyers often you know have more say than we should in those agendas. So we, we really try to operate in this other way that moves towards buy and for services and that centers um, the kinds of knowledges and experiences um, about harmful systems that come through having been subject to them mm-hmm. um, and that um, proposes resistance um, through that. So I guess you know I'll say in that that I also have become an academic, right? So I no longer work as a staff person at SRLP. I'm a, I'm a non-staff um, member of the organization and that was a big part of that decision to move into academia for me was was that we really wanted to fight like founder syndrome, like the idea that a person, especially often a white lawyer who, you know, can get funding for an organization to start and then stays there controlling everything till the end of time um, and so it was really important for me to move out of the role of a staff person and so an academic job was turned out to be a way to uh, you know, have a job um, but I think that for me, I don't think that like the, the, the work I do in the classroom, while it's important to me and I enjoy it and I get a lot out of it, I don't think that like, teaching law students is like the thing that I'm going to have done in my life that's going to have changed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and my work at SRLP, to me, is much more transformative, although I also really enjoy the kinds of thinking and learning and engaging with students I get to do in the classroom. But it's an interesting thing just to, mm-hmm. in this conversation of activism and knowledge. So
0: let's talk, if we can, about um, examples where we feel research Made a difference. You you mentioned some Rinku, Uh, and then I'd like to get to, as this is an we're here in the academy, otherwise known as at a college, um, how research that comes out of colleges can be helpful and not helpful. Uh, I heard Tavis Smiley the other day introduce Cornell West as one of the more um, user-friendly academics. He He said, you have usable knowledge, by which he meant knowledge that people use and can actually understand. But we do have an academic system that in many ways encourages people increasingly today, I think, to be as, um, if you don't mind me saying so, generally unusable as possible in order to get that PhD to be the only person on that topic. Um, You can take issue with me, but... I think it might be an interesting conversation. So, so stuff that works. Dean, you got an example of research that made a difference and how it came to make a difference?
3: Before I answer that, I want to just go back to something that Rinku said a little bit ago about how information is power, power is power. I feel like I just... Something I've just been really feeling the last few days that I just want to acknowledge that I think a lot of us are feeling, maybe I, I'm just projecting, but is, you know, I think especially in, like, the grief that a lot of us are feeling after the murder of Troy Davis and also the grief a lot of us have been feeling for a long time about what it feels like to see when we have all the good information spread around and we actually know it's gone out there and we all know and we're, and we're really mobilized and we really show up and turn out and then we don't win, right? Like the feeling of all the work we all did to mobilize around the war in Iraq that was based on a lie. We're still in that war. Guantanamo Bay. The. I mean, you know, the stuff around the bailout and executive pay, like good information has been spread about a lot of stuff and people have shown up and then we haven't always won. And I think that one thing that I think we're all dealing with all the time is figuring out what that means about our strategies, right? Like how do you strategize when you once you release the fantasy of some kind of moral state that will change its mind because we've shown all in all these ways we've stated our resistance and we've shown that we're Right. Like, that it turns out it means it, it takes more than being right and having the good information. And so I think that's just, like, one background thing I want us to have with us. And what does it mean in terms of moving beyond some of the tactics we've t- traditionally used that rely on that idea that good information will be enough? Because um, good information certainly is important. But sometimes I feel like things are studied and studied and studied when we all already knew, right, there's a racial wealth divide. We, like, you, could find, you can find – there's a million different ways to say it. But, like – You know, that's just that the country was founded to create it and it keeps creating it. Great. You know, like I I just sometimes I feel frustrated or like, trans people are super poor and in prison. I don't think I should have to find a statistic about that to just convince you all that that's a problem, right? And also, if, even if there wasn't, sometimes it's like the idea that you have to prove that there's enough people going through something. If anybody's going through certain things, everything needs to stop and we need to end it. You know, so, anyway, I think that's one of the dilemmas, but I will say that some useful knowledge oh, and some I'm happy to reject
0: everything I just said and go your way. Right, no, yeah. Well, no, just, just,
3: <laughs> so, I, I just want to say that as a tension, as an area of tension, because I think that the quest for endless more knowledge also feeds the academic industrial complex and all of the sketchy, scary, racist ways that it does research. But, that aside, um, some of the research that SRLP has been involved in and that I've been involved in that's been really useful that I think is also helpful to some other people in our movements right now is, you know, because we, cre- we created this collective structure for doing our work out of this awareness of the limits of the nonprofit um, industrial complex and, and building on also, like, the excellent book that many people have read, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded by Insight, um, So when we started the organization in 2002, we did this deep set of research, mostly looking at women of color, feminist organizations, a lot of which also did services to try to figure out how we could build an organization that was collectively run and was run by people getting the services um, and that also did the services and figuring out, like, what does that look like and how do you do that and how do you make that efficient and how does decision-making work and how do you make it accountable? And then we did another set of research just in the last few years of a bunch of organizations around the U.S. and Canada Asking them about their membership structures, and we're producing a report that's going to come out soon about, like, how do, for example, how do you build a membership structure that's accessible to homeless people, people with psychiatric disabilities, and other folks who often don't end up participating as much in um, social movement organizations because of barriers to their participation. So how are different smart organizations addressing that? Questions like that, like figuring out models that are working, experiments people are doing that may or may not apply in your region or may or may not apply with your constituency, but that, you know, that's stuff that I think is really, really useful and is kind of sometimes under-documented, under-documented like really brilliant things people have figured out in some organization in their town about how you even have this meeting go well or make sure everybody participates. I mean, there's, and so there's a lot of that knowledge that I think um, I enjoy that exchange with other activists and with other organizations, and that to me has been a really successful area of SRLP's engagement with uh, research and knowledge production.
0: Rinku, you want to come in on this? Yeah,
1: um, I have to say that most of... When I started thinking about research projects that had been useful, the first three or four that came into my mind were projects taken up directly by organizations with support from academics. Um, So there are a couple of... So they didn't originate in the academy from what I know. Um, uh, So having said that... um, I think I look, I look to do three things with knowledge. So one is to strategize, that's planning. And that is big strategy, like how are we going to um, take down the financial s- system? But it's also tiny little like mundane management things. How am I gonna deploy my team? How are we going to make sure all the different parts of this work get covered because we're not going to be able to do all of it? So strategy, you know, um, big strategy is really nothing without a very granular plan. And then um, uh, the second thing... Actually, that's the second thing. The first thing is I uh, use re, uh, information to understand the situation. So I understand, I strategize, and then the last thing is persuade. I try to move people in, in my direction. So a um, couple of things that have been helpful, um, uh, one that originated in the academy, we we run a campaign to... Uh, eradicate use of the language of illegality in the immigration debate, in immigration reporting, and in the way immigrants talk about themselves, and the way other people talk about us. So, um, in that work, I would say that uh, much of the historical work that did happen in the con- in the academy has been really helpful to us, and much of what we've done is actually translate that academic scholarship into um, everyday language, infographics, um, media messages, letters to the editor. You know, its there are like nuggets sort of embedded in that academic work that the average immigrant is not going to work their way through and even the average immigration advocate isn't going to. And then um, the other thing we've just uh, done recently is we did a study of 18 to 25-year-olds and their uh, racial concerns to uh, check on the assumption that uh, the millennials are the first American post-racial generation. And we did that in partnership with, UC, uh, with UCLA and, uh, you know, I think have actually produced knowledge out of that that is going to help Uh, people who work with 18 and 25 year olds in a bunch of different settings think about how to move the racial analysis and action forward Uh, so those are a couple of examples I I think it's not the question isn't really is this useful or is this not useful it's um, how can we make it useful Uh, so I don't want to. Um, I don't want to bind anybody's curiosity by saying that's too narrow or that's too broad. Um, I think everybody has to go through their own process of intellectually assessing what they want to be done with uh, what they produce, and then how they can make that happen. And yeah, that's and
0: that's things that hard. sometimes don't seem useful at some point might. 10, 15 years later turn out to be exactly right, right. for what you were looking for. Um, Jamia, I don't know if you want to answer the same question, sure. but I'd love you to address it.
2: Sure. Um, well, one thing that just came to mind was uh, when Dean was explaining that the narratives that are harmful that people hold on to, because the feeling of feeling right... It was it just illuminated so much for when you flipped it and and showed that you know there's a lot of these narratives that we hold on to that are actually really damaging, and I was thinking about um, the there's a lot of people who really still want to say that we're post-racial and that. Um, we need to move forward and stop hanging on to this idea that um, racism still exists or that it's worse than ever now with the Tea Party movement waging forward. And I wrote this piece uh, on The Help, the movie and the book, The Help, for Good Magazine. And I cited a statistic from a a Harvard and Tufts study that said that um, most self-identifying white Americans believed that they received more discrimination than people of color at this present moment, and this came out this year. And when I saw the hate mail that I received from (laughs) writing this piece, one of the women said, well, you're such a hypocrite because I liked your piece until you said that you didn't like um, white people speaking for you and you wanted to speak on your own terms, but you're speaking for white people by saying that we have a post-Obama paranoia um, about losing our privilege. And I pointed her back to the research statistic and invited her to debate it if she needed more than that. And I didn't receive a response at, at that point because Harvard and Tufts <laughs> proved for me, to, to this woman, this white woman who I think would see Harvard and Tufts as like being this credible source, that yes, in actuality, I'm sorry to change your American dream into a nightmare, but this is the reality. <laughs> and so I just wanted to share that because I, I felt that she was it was very sad that like she was clinging on to this narrative because she herself didn't want to feel like she was racist. But then I was able to use this research to kind of say, yes, we do have a problem in language that she understood with credibility that that she understood. Not that it makes it necessarily right, but I just found it interesting. And then um, the way that knowledge has been really useful to my work at Women's Media Center um, has been for a number of our campaigns. It's really hard for some people to understand how media representation actually applies to creating damaging systems and actually harming people and one of the campaigns, our coalition campaign, Spark Movement, that challenges sexualization of girls, one of the critiques we receive a lot is, oh, well, is everywhere, sex sells, there's nothing we can really do about it, and it's not really hurting anyone. But when the APA study actually showed that there was a correlation for, between everything from an increase in substance abuse, eating disorders, and also lack of condom use from young girls who had been exposed to sexualized media, That is really compelling, and so having that knowledge enabled us to create the Spark Summit where we brought together 300 people to talk about the issue of sexualization, academics and activists, to see how we can mobilize against this issue. it really gave us a platform to create a spark movement which is now what we're doing moving forward and it's a grassroots campaign and we're now doing petition campaigns and actions and i'm working with girls and um, rather than protecting them from this issue of sexualization they're fueling and leading the movement by doing their own blogs and organizing their own actions and so on the website the sparkmovement.org we actually have a girl's blog where girl paid girl bloggers talk about sexualization and how it applies to them and um, promote petition campaigns and repurpose ads that they see and recreate their version of the ad. Um, we also have a research blog where academics are side-by-side commenting on the same work. And so to have this research blog in tandem on equal status as the girls' blogs and girls' voices really shows me uh, the possibility of how the knowledge can be used and how there's experts come in many different forms. And then finally, I just wanted to mention the Name It Change It campaign, which is another project that we do at Women's Media Center in partnership with Women's Campaign Fund. And that is a campaign to challenge sexism against women candidates in the media. And if there did not exist this research that was created from Celinda Lake and her firm about how Sexism affects women candidates' campaigns and how reactions to sexism from these candidates also affect the way that voters view them. So um, this was really helpful for us to make the point that to media, that if you're promoting and perpetuating sexist ideas about candidates, you're hurting their campaigns. You are actually affecting political parity. And the reason that I think that for me personally, the campaign is so powerful is that there have been several people who've called the office interested in thinking about doing this sort of campaign in their country and I've also heard from African American women candidates and other women of color who've said, I want to even take this a step further and see how race, immigration status, and the intersectional nature of this sexism affects our campaigns and what should we do about it. And so it's sparking new conversations about research that could really be transformative.
0: Rinku, you wanted to interject.
1: Yeah, I want to say something about um, that moment that we all try to manufacture again and again and again where somebody changes their mind. Wow, you know, it's like the holy grail of political work. Um, And I think we've learned a lot about what Feeds that moment from brain research over the last 20 years, 25 years, from linguists and social psychologists and um, n- neurologists, I guess. Um, so, so one thing we know now is that people hold frames in their heads, right? Worldviews and frames are set from years of repetition, really hun- thousands of years of repetition. You know, we're not even talking about the 30 years you've been alive or, um, like that. So if I say to you, um, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, how many people here know what I mean? Sure. This side of the room is lying. <laughs> um, okay. So good. And, but how many people have read a Horatio Alger story? Very, very few. And yet you all know the bootstraps <laughs> phrase, but you've never read the story that in which it originated. So, um, So that's because frames get hardwired into our brains over years and years of repetition, and we have competing frames. So I can hold bootstraps, and I can hold Good Samaritan at the same time in my brain. And the second thing we know is that whichever I have dominant, when you show me a fact that contradicts that frame, I am going to throw away the fact. Mm. I'm not going to immediately throw away the frame. And I think I'm... I haven't... I think that we do that as human beings because if we changed our minds every time people gave us new information, we'd have no idea who we were. You know, our psyches would go insane. So, um, so okay, so we protect what we think we know. Our brains do that without our knowledge unconsciously. And... If you want to address, if you want to trigger a new frame, the key thing is that no fact is going to do it. A story is going to do it. An experience is going to do it. And probably not just one, but repeated experiences, repeated stories. And uh, so, narrative is a popular word in politics these days, and I go all kinds of places and people say, oh, we need a policy narrative, and we just put out this report, and it's a narrative, the narrative is you know, your policy platform is your policy platform. It's not a narrative. A narrative has to have a character, it has to have an idea, a setting, and it has to have a plot. Things have to happen in order for something to be a story. And so when you're looking at your research and hoping that it will persuade people to see reality, um, I would really encourage you to think about what is the story you're telling and how can you forefront foreground that story, rather than burying it somewhere and leading with your data instead. It's not that your data is not important, but it is, you have to, you have to place it in the right context for it to have the effect that you want it to have. Um, and that is an effect that's grounded in imagery and metaphor and stories, not in real data.
0: There was an interesting story in the New York Times metro section, I think, after marriage equality passed in New York, that talked about what had actually changed the minds of some of the legislators uh, here in this state. And it was all relationships. And whatever the truth, that story was rare in the sense that it revealed how the relationships these people had to people who were out in their lives had over time change them. Um, and you think, all that money spent on lobbying. Um, <laughs> but Dean, you've really bummed me out now. So I've been, you, you gave me permission to go into my feeling of total gloom about information. Um, and this was a really rough week. Uh, I told Rinku that on the night of the Troy Davis execution, I was at the Howard Zinn room at Bus Boys and Poets in Hyattsville. So we're celebrating this great historian of people's history and progressive history, and um, everybody's reading fabulous parts of the people's history and remembering social change that worked. And I got up there and said, There is such a thing as being too late. History is neutral, it can go either way. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't on message. Um, (laughs) But it was because of that. You had members of the Execution Guards Union saying this execution shouldn't go forward. There's too much doubt. Um, There was knowledge about the doubt, (laughs) Uh, but it still went ahead. The war that you talked about, the myths that we continue to have in our head about who was it that received welfare uh, and why they needed to be cut off. Um, Global warming, Great example. You know, by 2050, we'll have no fish left. We know that. But it doesn't really seem to change anything. Um, You raised it, Dean. Deal with it.
3: (laughs) No problem. Help help me out
0: here.
3: (laughs) I've just been waiting for someone to ask me that. Um, Well, I mean, I think that what I actually want to say to that is that it's interesting to look at how social movements have always um, engaged with knowledge and pedagogical practices as part of our work, right? So I, one of the thing I think about is how I think there's a lot of um, movements and movement organizations that are still using different freedom school models, right? And that those models are really important because they involve a recognition that we need, that we need to be in certain kinds of spaces to change our frames. I love what you just said about the brain research. that's super interesting, right? Does
0: everybody know what the freedom school model is? So
3: the yeah, basic idea that you know uh, that social movement organizations that have goals, whether that's you know whether we're doing labor organizing or whether we're organizing queer and trans youth or whoever we're organizing, you know, having a space for people to come together and actually go through a curriculum together, where maybe we learn things that we think are really important to our struggle, like um, basic what is organizing or movement history or what's happened to people like us in the past and how have we survived it or um, what do we need to work with each other respectfully. So how can we unlearn? Homophobia or dismantle white supremacy in our group, or how do we do consensus decision making I mean all these different skills and histories um, that we might need to learn to move forward in our work and I think you also see this in like the reading group model, and I often talk to my students about this like if you think you 're going to get the radical information out of a university when universities are you know part of the same process that is that produces all the nightmarish racist eugenic information you know occasionally you might get a good class sweet but like that's (laughs) people you know we all have to take a lot of responsibility for finding out what's really going on and it's a fantasy that that's just going to be delivered through some consumer process in the university but anyway this the idea of freedom schools to me um, is a really important idea about how we also think about like spaces where where we're open to being challenged right like spaces where. Um, because I'm here in a space with other people who I know share this commitment with, with me, even though I'm also like may have different antagonisms with some of them or maybe nervous about the ways that some of them are different from me, I might be more open to unlearning something or to finding out um, that I actually have a defensive reaction around a particular narrative, right? So in SRLP, for example, we do something a lot of groups do we have a people of color caucus and a white caucus um, because we recognize that people of color and white people have different skills we need to develop in dismantling racism and different roles in that work. And so as a member of the White Caucus, you know it's really, really important to be in a space with other white people directly talking about our roles in dismantling racism and what skills we need to build and you know, get rid of some of the showing off and things like that that happen when there's people of color in the room and just be really real about how we actually have to all do this with each other and break it down and get to a place where we can be non-defensive when we find out about the ways in which we're manifesting white supremacy, all of that stuff. So all those kinds of spaces, I think, are interesting spaces for us to think about. Knowledge production, and for me, like, you know, part of the knowledge that we really need, I was mentioning sort of models of how people, you know, historical models and models of how people resist and structure their resistance, but part of it is that the, the movements and resistances I am part of have demands like ending imprisonment and ending immigration enforcement. And if you do those things... You are in another world. Like we would not have like the we would not have like the United States as such. Like the, the actual form of the nation state is so reliant on those things. So it's kind of unimaginable, right? It requires this whole thing where we have to work together to imagine to be able to even imagine that vision and then also you know knowing that it, we, it will have to fill in over time to sort of imagine the unimaginable and then also imagine the things that bring us closer to that and also imagine how those structures are part of us and how we what kinds of people we would have to be to be in a world where those things were possible right so the ways in which let's say if imprisonment creates an exile logic in our in our in our world right where We think bad people must be put away, and we have this, like, good guys, bad guys frame that we give children from an extremely young age. Good guys, bad guys, good guys, bad guys, right? You know, whether that's cowboys, Indians, or all the millions of toys that are actually about policing and prisons. Um, We have those frames, and we have to figure out how deep we hold those, and how we even hold those, like, in our interpersonal relationships, in our organizations, how exile is, like, a whole logic, and what it is to think about healing the exile logic in our interpersonal relationships, in our organizations, and broader and broader out, right? Like, if we're ever going to get to a place where we imagine that everybody has everything they need and nobody is exiled, and we heal harm rather than making harm a a reason and a a site for further and further and further deepening of violence, we have to do a lot of learning together. You know, and that's just a really different way of thinking about knowledge and a way of thinking about how group processes like white caucuses and people of color caucuses or freedom schools are spaces of social experimentation in a lot of ways. Because it's also like, if we're using consensus decision making, we're trying something really different as people, and, and regarding trust, and regarding participation, and regarding knowledge, than like hierarchical forms that we would learn in a classroom. So I think all of that, to me, is some of the mm. answers to those questions.
0: Rinku, do you want to help heal my bummed outness? Well, really what I want to say to
1: you, Laura, is that even when we don't feel optimistic, we have to fake it. <laughs> And um, because, uh, you know, going back to that thing about what activates people, what keeps them moving, it's not depression. And...
0: You mean my too late message was really not on?
1: <laughs> no, but I feel it too. I get it. And there are, you know, I think it's, there's a line because you don't want to be fake about what is actually required from us, which is a depth of commitment that mostly, you know, we're not called to. You know, life is kind of designed for Americans to be floated through on. And, um, and we're kind of... Uh, Convinced that the float is possible by advertising, so um, so there's a lot uh, there's a lot going in there for balancing reality and a real um, an honest assessment of where we are, what we're winning, what we're losing, uh, how the ideas are advancing or not. Um, but, at the end of the day, you know when I go to work every day, I have to motivate a staff because I don't pay them that much, and I have to motivate funders to give us money, and I have to motivate TV producers to put up our story, or you know motivate uh, legislators to think of racial equity as a criteria for the things they produce. Um, they ultimately, they have to feel like there's something to be gained by by taking that action, by, by going there, and um, and it can take a long time. I, I think, I, we haven't talked a whole lot about instinct or inner wisdom on this panel, and I think that is a really, there's a lot to that, and I think this point about how we feel and how other people feel, and whether we go gloomy or go um, hopeful, It has a lot to do with what's going on inside and what we know inside. And so if you know inside, we've invested two years in X strategy and it's not going to work. I think the immigrant rights movement had a real moment of that. It lasted about two years. you know, when comprehensive immigration reform failed and failed and failed to pass, no matter what we tried, basically. tried four different sets of messages, still failed. And in fact, just keeps getting worse. Um, So so that's something I want to say. And um, so I think you have to fake it. And um, and then I, I think you have to rely on your inner wisdom. So... We're working on something right now, actually, that'll be released in the next in the coming weeks, where we've been looking at how immigrant parents, non-citizens, not just undocumented parents, lose their parental rights, lose their kids when their kids are in the child welfare system and they are in detention or deportation. And this started seven, eight years ago when I heard a story and met some girls, met three sisters who were in foster care, uh, mother was in prison, looked forward to being reunited with her, but then she was deported when her prison term ended. And for five years, we talked to people about it, and they'd say, no, that's not really a problem. No, immigrants keep their kids out of child welfare. That's what people said to us, as though... I don't know. Um, <laughs> Um, anyways, and um, but we kind of stayed on it because we had some instinct that it is not just one family here and there. This is going to turn out to be something systemic. And we had that instinct because we had a lot of information about other things for many years before that, 20, 30 years before that. and um, And, you know, I think... I'm hopeful that having stuck to it, even in the moments where it looked really bad, like we were never going to make any progress on that thing, no one was ever going to admit that it really happens out of any system, um, that basically we're abducting the children of non-citizens because we make it impossible for them to get their kids back out of child welfare. So without an inner instinct that that was something to keep bringing up again and again and again, we would not be where we are now, about to release national data on it and with very compelling stories and with some possibility of actually making the changes that can keep families together. Um, But there were some dark days on that one, and there will be more, and um, yeah, and you have to... You have to make some choices about what you're going to present out to the world. Jimmy
2: So um, I, I think Cornell West said um, when he was speaking about his understanding of um, how like, white people understood the myth of the American dream, he said that while that was, and this is I think during the L.A. riots, while that was um, something that um, most African Americans um, could not understand because of our truth, that he would remain a prisoner of hope, and I thought about this during the time when I was lighting my candle, and those minutes when they were telling us what the Supreme Court was going to decide with um, Troy Davis, and um, I really was thinking in that moment that like I have to be a prisoner of hope right now. Um, that that my conscience needs this, my community needs this, and I have to be a beacon. Like even though I feel right now like this is a point of death, that 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 light, that crack, tiny little crack of light that still exists is like what I'm gonna have to grab onto and I'm gonna have to grab onto it really hard. Um, and the, the hope really came for me from this picture of students at Howard University that was um, going across Facebook and they all had their fists up like this on the White House steps and I saw someone who was actually an intern at Women's Media Center, who is a journalist at Howard, and, an, and another one of the pictures from Howard. And that picture gave me that hope. And thinking about my own experience, where I was at Howard for a little while, doing grad studies before I transferred to NYU, and my own journey, where I think I wanted to go to Howard to find like what Stokely Carmichael found there and what Du Bois found there. And then I found a lot of other bourgeois black people like me <laughs> when I got there, realizing that it was a different time, um, and, and, and had this like disappointment that I was like, oh, I was going to feed this hunger before I really had this understanding of how you have to get right within before you can really be transformative. Um, and seeing that picture brought me back to that time and that place and thinking about Yes, there was this time in history where we kind of forgot who we were and, and the people who helped us get to this point and our ancestors and what they did to help us get to that point that we could be carrying Louis Vuitton bags in the square at, Ho- at, Ho- at Howard. <laughs> um, and now we're at this point where our very survival and likelihood depends on us being hopeful, depends on us going to the White House and telling Obama, remember who you are, remember who we are, This is the hope that we need to see the change that you promised. And so I, it may seem very naive, but I feel that during these lowest, darkest times that hope is all we've got. And and I just remember that the anti-lynching movement really set the stage for the civil rights movement as we know it. And so it is my hope that this tragedy that happened is going to be the spark that ignites a revolution.
0: Mm. Let's thank the panel. Thank you.